Now, one, one of the lovely things about an audio studio like this is that it's a delightful enclosed refuge from an open plan office environment, <laughs> a little sealed a sealed room. And a lot of us, a lot of us have experience of open plan designs, and some, I'm sure, are positive. Like like any design, there are fine examples. In recent months, open plan schools, they are a thing and they've been pulled into this debate. Classrooms, or as they are now known as innovative learning environments, uh, have changed. And in February, the, the Grattan Institute, it warned against continued promotion of these spaces, arguing that there's little evidence to show that they help learning uh, and that greater noise, in fact, can impede student focus. Others, of course, beg to differ. So to help us wade through the contested space that is this idea of open plan, we have enlisted the help of two very special guests. Mary Featherston is a celebrated Australian designer whose work spans 50 years, and of late she's specialised in learning spaces, and that includes the, the design of Australia's first children's gallery. And joining Mary is Rory Hyde, an architectural researcher, curator and writer at the Melbourne School of Design. Welcome to you both. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Hi Mary. Now, Rory, just to, to begin, let, let's just set a scene here, a little bit of historic context, this notion of, of open plan. When does that emerge in design? It cast our minds back a hundred years ago, and the best image I have of this is the private eyes office in the film noir movie. <laughs> Got it. And My thinking, feet are on the yeah, desk. That's right. Feet on the <laughs> desk, smoke filled, <laughs> sitting near a window in a tall, shallow planned building and receptionist in the next room, but very close doors and glass panels and gold lettering and this kind of thing. That's sort of 1920s, 1930s. Then we have in office design a sort of construction revolution, wide spans, lifts, air conditioning, elevators, fluoro lights. And offices suddenly bloat into these huge wide platforms and um, people are then marooned in the centre of these big vast areas, lined up in rows, working very studiously in these um, artificially lit and air-conditioned environments. And that's really when the open plan arrives. Quite quickly after that, though, there's the sort of challenge to it, the revolution. We don't have to all sit in ordered rows being surveilled by our bosses. But we could suggest uh, new forms of freedom within this big uh, platform. So it's wonderful compound German word, which is Bürolandschaft, <laughs> <laughs> which literally <laughs> translates to office landscape, comes in in the 1960s. And this is, imagine, pot plants and desks seemingly scattered randomly, um, partitions, groovy coloured furniture, carpets, it's still the same big platform, but we've got some sort of open freedom. And really, I think that's the origins of the contemporary workplace today, which is you can customise it yourself, but you're um, still within this big artificial environment. There's yeah. an interesting tension in it, isn't there, Mary, around the individual? And so much of open plan is, is a denial of individuality as much as we can tease the space up with a plant. Yeah, well, I, th I think that, Often, and particularly the Bureau Landschaft that Rory's describing, is it depends on big open spaces that are flexibly divided with furniture. And the problem is that if you put more than one activity in that space, and particularly incompatible activities, then uh, they just don't work. That's the problem. 
how has the, the sort of the office space in, in your experience of them changed over time? What's your what's your sense of that that arc? Well, I think that the arc is very similar in offices and schools and, and even homes, actually. We start, if we go back in history, to the sort of closed offices that Rory's describing, the cells, and the same thing in schools, the, the cellular classroom linked by corridors, and in homes, separate rooms. And then at some point there's a reaction against that and it's often a sort of very strong reaction that we need to open this up. Mm. We don't want to live in this conventional, confined way anymore. So we pull down the walls and we open it up too much. And then, particularly in schools around about 70s, 80s, people said, this doesn't work. And so they put all the walls up again. <laughs> <laughs> so in homes at the moment, you can see people in there. They pulled down the walls between kitchens and dinings and living rooms and opened up the space and then found that you can't actually cook a noisy dinner in the kitchen next to somebody who's quietly you know, trying to read somewhere else. And so what it says to me as a, as a designer is that there's a real challenge in this mm. and it's about subtle design, actually, saying, yes, we really want these things to coexist. We want to develop relationships between people. How can we do both? I guess the problem, Rory, is that so much of the, so many of the spaces that we don't even choose to inhabit, that we are obliged to inhabit, are, are not created with that subtlety of purpose, with that, with that insight from from the, a design point of view. That's right, and and I think it's as Mary describes, there's a real collision between the tensions of these designs and these spaces and the and the reality. You know, we think if we put everybody in one big space, they'll talk to each other, they'll collaborate, they'll bump into each other in the hallways, they'll come up with new ideas, they'll be innovative. But of course, the opposite is... Hands up who have never had that experience in the workplace. And of course, the people making these decisions are the ones with the doors closed on their offices, you know, in the corner. Yes. And the reality of the people on the floor, if you like, is they'll put their headphones on and hunch their shoulders and, and use every possible sense of body language to say, don't disturb me, I'm trying to get something done. And so that collision of ideas is, is a bit of a fantasy, I think. And some, and there's lots of research to play that out. Even, I mean, that isn't even in play, Mary, is it in schools? It's not, we're not trying to have that sort of voluble mix of ideas in the corridor around the water cooler. Here we have this, this educative environment where we are attempting with a, with a, Often quite a strict hierarchy in mind to to impart something, but within a within a physical structure. How how has the thinking in in school shifted? And you 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 briefly sketched that. Well, I think we need to go back twenty years, particularly in Victoria. There was a very strong media campaign that shone a light on the terrible state of repair of school buildings. Mm-hmm. As a result of that campaign, not only did they, you know, fix some of the toilets, but it also raised interest in the physical environment more generally. Why is the traditional classroom designed the way it is? And it's very specific. So this also coincided with an interest in um, notions of collaboration and team teaching. The schools were then based on bringing classroom groups together into large spaces with a team of mm-hmm teachers, but often those spaces, they would have classroom size spaces within them around a multi-use space, 
which is good for everything and good for nothing. So <laughs> that, that sort of plan arrived and it sort of continued. It's been tweaked over the years and developed in a very ad hoc manner. But essentially the approach to teaching and learning has remained the same. So that, that leads us to the Grattan article where they're saying you can't actually teach in a traditional way cheek by jowl with an active group. My fear is, on past experience, that that means up with the walls. Mm. Instead of saying, what can design professionals do about this? Designers have got a very large toolbox of solutions that they can bring to any design challenge. Well, that, that subtle design that you, you spoke of, examples of how that would work to, to cure that, that issue that you isolate there, of, of keeping them apart, <laughs> But together, but and yet together, it's apart but together. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Well, can I take you on a walk through a? Oh, please do. My ideal learning environment. Before I walk around this neighbourhood with you, and and in this case, it'll be a neighbourhood that is home to seventy-five children and their team of three teachers. Okay. So the approach here to learning and teaching is not the lesson plan, but it is collaborative inquiry. In this approach, you're actually bringing together the skills and the knowledge of the adults, the teachers, together with the capabilities, the interests of this particular group of children. So the whole community, if you like, is coming together around an inquiry, like a research question, mm -hmm. and they pursue that together and that can go on over weeks or months and sometimes a, a year. So the space that this happens in is, is a large space, big enough for that big community, but it's a large space made up of smaller spaces. So it's not entirely open, it's not entirely closed, it's a sort of hybrid. We might walk in and we... We enter into a, a, a large carpeted space and I can see a teacher sitting with um, a couple of girls and she's helping them to write a letter. In the same space I can see children working alone or together. There's a child curled up in a comfy corner reading a book. From this space I can see, but I can't hear, a large group of children who are singing and dancing. They're with their Italian teacher who's, who's come in to teach them <laughs> a traditional um, Italian children's song. And they're being recorded by another couple of students because that film will be used later in a presentation to parents. We can't hear them because they're separated by a large glass sliding door. It's an enclosed room. It can be used for film projection, games, music. But also from that, that central commons, I can see a couple of children drawing symmetrical patterns. They're exploring symmetry. And this pattern will be used to make toys. And over near the sink, I can see a couple of kids making felt, which will be used <laughs> in the making of the, the felt toys. But over in another corner, quieter corner, there's a, two or three children around a large table and in the centre of the table, the teachers have set up a still life. So there's flowers, fruit, and the children are just sitting there quietly drawing. And the teachers tell me that 
this is one of the children's favourite activities. They'll just drop into this space. So this is all in a room which is a studio. It's a wet studio. So there's lovely north light pouring in. I can see the robust material so it can easily be maintained. There are sinks. It's a space in which you can do a lot of things, but they're all of a kind. They're wet, messy. And how is that connected to the broader space? It's an enclosed space, but in this case, it might just have a low barrier between the studio mm. and the carpeted space, which is good because it inhibits the movement of wet, messy stuff into the, yes. the carpeted <laughs> space, you know. So that's subtle. You know, it doesn't have to be a brick wall. It's just a, it's a low barrier. I mean, this is what design can do. It can give you cues for behaviour. Mm. It says to the kids, OK, you can go over there and be this wet is... and messy, but this is for something for us. So I can look through a s small glass door and I can see a group of half a dozen children with a teacher and they are in a short, intense, focused learning session. Quiet, enclosed room. But again, I can see them. So acoustically it's controlled, but visually it's connected. I'm extremely keen to lose myself in that world and re retreat to my childhood and spend it there. <laughs> it sounds... Superb. And I, I guess, Rory, what we're doing there, what Mary's doing there is is parsing this notion of openness mm. and, and, and recognising, I guess, that it, it has different qualities. It has visual qualities. It has oral qualities and that you can treat those in different ways and remain with that idea of openness and yet be enclosed. Mm, mm, that's right. I mean, it's the subtlety that you describe of those different heights and transparencies and audio qualities but also there's a philosophy, isn't there, that underpins that design, mm. which says children are experts at being children. Let's let them guide their pursuits and trust them to become rounded people, not this is what you need to know, times tables, sit all in a row looking at the front. This says, OK, well, take responsibility for your pathway. And, and the space is there to encourage you in that direction, give you those spatial cues and direct you in that in that direction. And you don't, Mary, suddenly change that philosophy by just creating an open space. The open space has to be guided by the philosophy no, and formed by it. That's the essential point, mm. that any effective design, you'd find every element of it is determined by underlying values and beliefs. And by the way, that also applies to the design of a traditional classroom, which, you know, I, I shock people by saying that it's a perfect piece of design for its purpose. The memorising of the eight times table. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's, everything is designed to focus on the teacher at the front. Um, it's designed to, to reduce all distractions, interactions between the, the learners. How does this overlap, Rory, with, with thinking around the office? So I went to an incredible open plan office in California, which is the Facebook headquarters. I think it's arguably the biggest open plan place in How the world. big? <laughs> well, it takes you 20 minutes to walk from one end to the other. Good Lord. They've got a series of bikes. So you take a lift down, you get on a bike and you cycle to your meeting in the same room. Desks is beyond the horizon as far as you can see. But it's also these, these queues are there in that space too. They spend a lot of effort on commissioning artists to make big walls or um, gardens where people can go and retreat to. The whole roof is a garden with food trucks and ping pong tables and all the sorts of distractions that are there to uh, encourage that collaboration and co-working and so on. 
So there's real thought in there. I, I guess that's that's the, the the broad lesson we're sort of pulling out of both those ideas of, of of school and work, is that the space is is only half formed without a philosophy that guides it. We we need the two things hand in hand. Mm. And it's it, whether you value the work, the task, or people. You know, going back to the industrial revolution, when there was a real need to develop a mass education schooling system. We learnt from the factories, the process, the production line. You gave us a model. Yeah, mm. that you've got one motive force, one motor can drive several operations at once. So you've got one teacher <laughs> instructing a large group of students. And also the assembly line where you cut the product up into bits. You know, you separate into to workable chunks. So the same we did the same with the curriculum. You know, chop it up into mm. chunks. Mm. Chop the time up it in chunks because if the time's too long, the kids will get bored. You know, and that's no good. So you've got to keep moving them on. Again, you know, architects and designers know how to solve those problems. But my worry at the moment is that if we keep throwing up school buildings as we are, they may not support traditional approaches to teaching and learning. And they may stymie future development. That's the real worry. What we really need is is a way to bring the information into some sort of central focus that can generate really good workable plans that are adaptable for the future because we've no idea what the future is going mm. to be. No, that much is certain. <laughs> Look, thank you to you both. A fascinating conversation. And I wish, Mary, that we could through some, I don't know, trick of 3D printing or some such, wire your mind and its vision up and make that instantly real. Thank you both, uh, Mary Featherston and Rory Hyde, um, both designers and researchers around at RMIT University and the Melbourne School of Design, respectively. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.